Hello and welcome to the Marysville Church of Christ podcast. My name is Bishop Darby and I'll be your host today. Today we find ourselves in week two of our Promised Land series in, when, in which we answer perhaps the most difficult question we'll tackle, which is why did God command the slaughter of the Canaanites? If you are unfamiliar with the story, I would invite you to turn to passages like Deuteronomy chapter 20 for guidance. But in short, the Israelites, upon their exodus out of slavery in Egypt, wandered the wilderness until such a time that they were ready to inhabit the land God had promised them. The difficulty was, at the time there were at least seven nations that were scattered in this promised land, and they had to be removed. And so, as we see in passages like Deuteronomy 20, the Israelites declared war, although less war, more genocide, on the Canaanites. And they did it in God's name, and even on the surface, by God's decree. See, there are two major ways I would like to explore today that explains what exactly happened to lead to that moment. And hopefully by the end of the day, we'll start shaping an answer as to why. Now, if you were not available to listen to last week's podcast, I urge you to stop now and begin part one of this mini-series on the Promised Land. We discuss the dialectical nature of Scripture. God breathed through humans. We also need to remind ourselves that human fingerprints mar the Bible. There are many times where people try, through their limited knowledge and understanding, to interpret facts, but often do it incorrectly. We used the example last week of David and the census, and again, I encourage you to listen to it. So Moses here is the author, and how he writes regarding the genocide how he writes regarding the prophecies of what's to come and how he articulates the commands of God are vital because they reveal, in my opinion, just as much about Moses as they do God. Let's begin by looking at the first time this command is issued in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 20. I am going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to his voice. Do not defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion, for my name is upon him. But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will cacod them. We're going to come back to that in a moment. You must not bow down to their gods or worship them. Do not imitate their practices. Instead, demolish them. Smash their sacred pillars to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will remove illnesses from you, and no women will miscarry or be childless in your land. I will give you the full number of your days. 
I will cause the people ahead of you to feel terror and throw into confusion all the nations you come to. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and retreat. I will send the hornet in front of you, and it will drive the Havites, Canaanites, and Hittites away from you. I will not drive them out ahead of you in a single year. Otherwise, the land would become desolate, and wild animals would multiply against you. I will drive them out little by little until you have the land. There's a lot in this passage. It's a longer reading. But right off the bat, I want us to be careful. Because some of your translations make a huge leap. In that verse that I said, kakad, that would be in verse 23. A lot of translations will say things like, to wipe them out, to annihilate them, or to destroy them. However, I would be very careful. Because that does not necessarily accurately depict the word. The word kakad is a confusing one. It literally means to conceal, hide, or move to obscurity. For instance, the psalmist in Psalm 40 uses this word when he says, I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not kakad your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Well, in this passage, he is not destroying, annihilating, or making obsolete. He simply is concealing it. In Job 15, verse 28, similar concept, he will dwell in ruined cities and empty houses destined to become piles of rubble. Again, it's not that the houses are annihilated or destroyed, simply concealed and hidden. So what we have to do here is be careful that we're not making leaps that often translators do, especially in the context of what all God says. See, in this passage, God is very clear on his plan to remove them from the land, slowly by slowly, using hornets and pestilence to gently guide them away. He talks about how the Israelites are going to see their backs as they are leaving, but it's going to take time. Now, Moses here applied this kakad and assumed, as was his custom of his culture, that what God actually meant was a complete and utter annihilation. And so he said things that changed. When it said originally hornets, or his terror, verse 27, to drive them out little by little, verse 30, and in verse 31, deliver the land to them. What Moses took from that is a mass invasion leading to blood and to destruction. But God kept trying to correct Moses. He kept trying to correct Moses's theology. He kept reminding Moses, Moses, my plan is not war and annihilation and destruction. It's hornets gently moving them from the land. He did this in Exodus chapter 33 verse 2. I will send an angel ahead of you, and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. In, verse, in chapter 34, verse 11, he says, I'm going to drive out before you these nations. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse three, or 23, you must not follow the nations, for I am presently pushing them out. In Numbers 32, the Lord is driving the enemies out of our presence. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 38, I'm going to push them out of the land. It's amazing how many times God tried to reiterate to Moses what his plan was. And yet Moses 
did not understand. And so Moses took a plan of gently using the land to expel the Canaanites and turned it into a command for genocide. Perhaps no passage in Scripture is more clear on this than Leviticus 18. Starting in verse 24, Do not defile yourselves by any of these practices, for the nations that I am pushing out before you have defiled themselves on all these things. And so the land has become defiled. So I am punishing it for its sins. And the land will vomit out its inhabitants. Do you notice here what's happening? The land is pushing out the people. Again reiterating God's plan. When God was revealing this revelation to Moses, it is actually in perfect keeping with the image we get of Jesus Christ. Whereas it would make no sense for Jesus Christ, as we discussed last week, the perfect and clearest revelation of God, as we see in Hebrews 1. It would make no sense for Jesus Christ, the Savior who said, all who live by the sword will die by it, to then bypass his own standard, draw a sword, go into Canaan, and slaughter men, women, and children. The God who would rather go to a cross than to watch the world die. He would rather himself be sacrificed instead of lifting a finger against his enemies. That God is not going to offer a mass genocide. However, a slow, methodical, inch-by-inch expelling of a nation by the means of hornets and locusts, and the ground no longer being favorable, minimizing casualties, not looking to kill, but just to coerce out of a nation. Now that, that's far more righteous and merciful. So, God's plan originally to use hornets to gently push them out. But Moses, Moses misunderstood. In Psalm 18, verse 26, to the pure you show yourself pure, but with the crooked you show yourself shrewd. This is a perfect example of that. Moses, war-torn, driven by power, and misunderstood, misaligned by the culture of his day, decided to follow the ancient Near Eastern mythologies and the culture of violence, rather than listen to what God was actually saying. I also want to be careful on something. As we'll see in just a moment, we're going to read some passages of how Moses took this kakad command to push out and made it a violent one, harem. But before we get to that, I'd like us to be careful that we don't misunderstand God's silence as God's acceptance. In Psalm chapter 50 and verse 21, the psalmist writes, You have done these things, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Or in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 14, he writes, I have kept silent from ages past. I have been quiet and restrained myself, but now I will groan like a woman in labor, gasping breathlessly. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 11, You lied and did not remember me or take me to heart. Have I not kept silent for such a long time, and yet you still do not respect me? God's silence was for a time. And Moses, as he was committing these acts of genocide and violence that were so not keeping with what God desired, you can only imagine the frustration and the anger as God 
to use the image is holding his breath until eventually he can let out the air and gasps. And we'll talk about when that time came next week. Moses only understood violence and warfare. And so now, what we're going to see is Moses commanding violence and warfare. God, in his infinite grace and mercy, chooses to use people. Use people who are fallen. When he used the apostles, he did not perfect them, but rather worked despite their evident brokenness. Their brokenness can be seen and occasionally counter God's desires throughout the New Testament. When he worked through the kings, he did not perfect them, but rather worked despite their evident brokenness. Their brokenness can be seen and occasionally counter God's desire. When he used the prophets, he did not perfect them, but rather worked despite their evident brokenness. Their brokenness can be seen and occasionally counter God's desires. So would the writers of Scripture be any different? No, of course not. There are plenty of instances of Scripture where writers allow their broken views of God and the world to come out. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses reveals this to him. Notice, remember, keep in the back of your head what we just read about God's initial plan. Now, let's listen to Moses retelling it to the people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, he will drive out many nations before you. So far right. And when the Lord God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely annihilate them. Make no treaty with them and show no mercy. Well, now wait a second. Because I read the initial command that God gave to Moses, and I didn't hear any of that. Make no treaty, show no mercy. It goes on. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. That is true. God did say that in that Exodus 23 passage. But then again, Moses follows it up. A couple verses later, you must destroy all the people the Lord your God is delivering over to you. For that will be a snare to you. Do not look on them with pity. When God said things like, stay pure, don't fall into their practices, he never made a mention of killing every man, woman, and child to avoid it. No, that's Moses' lines. And so what we see is that Moses and his brokenness, influenced by his bias and his culture, reveals his inability to follow God's ideal and shows that he himself misunderstood who God was. If every passage of Scripture has two voices represented, God and man's, let's explore both voices in this text. First, let's consider the voice of Moses. Instead of God wanting to cacod the people, which moves them out, Moses declared a harem, a holy war, changing the focus from a slow expulsion of the people to extermination of a people. Moses misunderstood the hornets as not the primary form of expulsion, but rather what will abad or destroy the survivors. He assumes in this passage that the violence of the sword is the primary method of conquest despite God never saying that. Moses believed that God, that though God wants it to be little by little, 
and not to destroy them all at once. He actually wants it to end with utter destruction and annihilation. And so God, God's ideal, God's words, and God's righteousness was broken and marred by a broken and marred man. And God watched in horror as a war was declared against the Canaanites. Let's consider how the voice of God still tries to break through the bias and brokenness of the story, though. Because there are moments. One, listen to all those passages we just read about God keeping silent. There would come a punishment for them. And that punishment did come. It's interesting that all empires that begin by the sword fall by the sword. All of them. And Moses here began a nation of people based on violence and extermination. And as sin does, it came back to haunt them. They were plagued with constant invasions over and over and over again throughout the time of the judges and into the time of the kings and eventually into their exile. Never again would that region of the world have peace. The consequence of Moses breaking and changing God's ideal and morphing it into his fallen understanding was that there would never be peace again for Israel. God's desire to stay with Israel through their despicable action of violence is important, though. God made a covenantal oath when he, with Abraham, and his love for them still shone amidst the darkness of this battlefield. And so God chose to stay with a broken and evil people because that's what God does. God bears with the sins of people. Second, I'd like you to consider that God staying with this broken people plays, the sal- plays for the salvation of the whole world through the coming of Jesus Christ through Israel. He so loved the world that he was willing to endure the horror and heartbreak of battle. And thirdly, I'd like you to consider this. God is always a God who sticks with people through the most horrific portions of their life. And aren't we glad? Because doesn't he do that to us today? So why did the Canaanite offerings happen? Well, we're one step closer to an answer. Why did the Canaanite violence and extermination and genocide occur? Well, we're one more step to understanding. It starts with a dialectical scripture written and influenced by two parties, as we discussed last week. And it's the result of a man so biased for war, broken by his culture, that he misinterpreted the command of God. Next week, to help further along this answer, we are going to go to Joshua chapter 5, and we're going to see that even in the midst of that moment, the Lord was not in favor of violence. In fact, the, the Lord in Joshua 5 outright declares that he is not on Israel's side. I'm excited to study that text with you. And we'll conclude in week four by putting these four